Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so honored to welcome my guest, Lorna Dallas. Lorna is a veteran cabaret singer whose new show, Glamorous Nights and Rainy Days, directed by Barry Kleinbort, is playing at the Lori Beachman Theater on May 17th. You can find tickets at the link in the episode description. Lorna is actually a veteran of both the cabaret and the theater stages, having starred in the West End in Kismet with Joan Diener, the innovative production of Hello Dolly starring Danny LaRue, and Showboat with Cleo Lane. She has performed for almost every member of the royal family, and with stars including Molly Pecon, Bob Hope, and John Cullum. And now, without further ado, here's Lorna Dallas. Well, so I'd love to start things off by asking you, how did you first come to be interested in performing? And <laughs> uh, When I was very small, I, I had an older sister who's 10 years older than me, had a wonderful voice, and she, uh, I used to imitate her. Um, and I, believe it or not, I used, when I used to imitate Bugs Bunny records and all that sort of thing, just anything like that, that just sort of hit my fancy. And uh, uh, I started singing very young. It was just something that I did for fun. Um, so, but I, I would I would put it down to to trying to imitate my older sister, who was really really good. Uh, and were your parents supportive of your interest, both yours and your older sister's? They were. They were very much so. But uh, I have to say that when my sister. Uh, graduated from university, from Indiana University, uh, she had opportunities to go into show business. And unfortunately, my parents sort of, we're from Southern Illinois in the Bible Belt. And no offense, but um, they were against her going into show business. At that point, they thought, no, it's not quite the thing we want our daughter to do. So she was discouraged from it. And she taught school, which my father was, was a wonderful uh, uh, advocate of advanced education for anyone. And he was thrilled when she taught school, but it was not what she liked doing. So she left that and she went on to become a very successful uh, person in, in public relations. Uh, and when I came along, then um, I won a national talent contest when I was 16 and my parents, then it was, my sister was saying, let her do it, let her do it. So uh, I have to say she paved the way for me. And uh, uh, so that started it all. So that national talent contest. Yeah. Uh, and were there songs or singers that especially appealed to you early on? Oh, uh, I loved listening. Eileen Farrell, who was an opera singer, who put out recordings and one album she did, Eileen Farrell Sings the Blues. It was wonderful, absolutely fantastic. 
um, I loved her recordings. I loved, I loved the things on television. That uh, the Ed Sullivan Show was like a religion to watch that every Sunday night, and the people that appeared on that were were wonderful. One person in particular that I was fascinated by, and you'll find this a very crazy choice: Katerina Valente, an international artist who was. She was on everyone's television variety program. And in fact, I think she won an Emmy as, as the most international or most highly regarded uh, guest on television. And I used to see this one. I thought, gosh, she's, she's really quite incredible. And she can do anything. Uh, comedy is sing, play instruments, dances. Uh, and I, it was just something that fascinated me. And then I have to say that years later, when I went to London to do Showboat, the revival of Showboat, I add, um, when I went there, Katerina was headlining at a, a nightclub there, a very famous nightclub in London called um, Talk of the Town. And when I saw that she was on there, I thought, oh, my God, I can see this woman live. And so I made arrangements. My agent uh, rang the talk of the town and said, oh, Miss Dallas wants to see Miss Valente. And her curt my curtain would come down at 1030 by the time I got all the, the wigs off and everything and could get around to the talk of the town. I would make it there just in time for the curtain for their late night show. So the talk of the town says, yes, we will make special reservations for Miss Dallas and she'll come in. We want her to come to the stage and we'll take her straight into the theater. So I, I was that night I, I gazelled out of, out of the theater straight over to talk of the town. And I sat there absolutely entranced watching. I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm finally seeing this woman that I've seen on television all these years ago and, and admired so. And she was incredible. And afterwards, I went back around to the stage door and the stage doorman said, oh, please go right up to Miss Valente's room. And I went up and I knocked on the door and the door opens and she said, you. And I, I look around and I, who she taught? And I said, excuse me, she said, you are fantastic. And I said, but I've come to tell you, you are fantastic. And she said, I saw you this afternoon. I saw the matinee. You are wonderful. Come in. And immediately I'm taken in, I'm introduced to everyone. There were producers there and directors and all this. And she says, I want you to meet my friends. And she's saying, now this woman, you must use her. You must love it. And I'm like pinching myself thinking, this is, this is something out of a movie. This isn't real. And anyway, Katerina just embraced me so. And uh, after that, I was introduced to her producer in Germany. I was introduced to director of her television series. I did her television series there. I did. Uh, I was introduced to a recording producer, and I went over there. and He says, "I'm writing something for you." So he was writing an opera for for television, and uh, a role was written in it for me. And I'm, I'm all this time I'm thinking, I was just a kid watching this woman on television. <laughs> And now I'm a part of her life. I just don't believe it. So that she opened the, the, up the doors for me for for Germany and television and all that. That was and all across um, 
Europe at that time. The first one I did, the first big television I did, it was in Vienna at the Stadthalle and then um, Bonn and Berlin and Stuttgart. And, and she was she was amazing. And still to this day, you know, I'm, and in fact, when I met my husband, I, I rang Katerina, I said, I've met the love of my life. She said, well, I have to meet him to make sure he's right for you. <laughs> to pass my test. So my husband had, well, we weren't married. He had to meet her. We went to Savoy to meet her and, and she looked, she said, fine, excellent. You may marry him. So I got her blessing then. So, so talk about fairy tales. Yes, I've had a few of them. Oh yes, that is wonderful. And so when you won this talent contest early on, how did you begin to sort of pursue it professionally coming out of that? Did you move to New York or? No, I, being very young um, and coming from a small town of 2000 people in Southern Illinois, um, at that time, my parents did not try to make any decisions for me, nor did my sister say, but I knew what she wanted, yes, for sure. But uh, because of all the people that I had been around through that contest and my parents, I think, could see what an incredible uh, event it was. It was the forerunner of America's Got Talent and uh, American Idol and all of those. There were 20,000 people that entered across the United States. Wow. And I won in New York. There were three winners in New York, and I, I won in New York. And um, anyway, I had the good sense to say no to all the offers that came in to me that time. There were quite a few. There was an offer of, of being in a Broadway show, mus musical, um, also of, of going out on tour with Mitch Miller at that time as a soloist. Um, and all sorts of things. And I said, no, I think I need to go to university. So I followed in my sister's footsteps by going to Indiana University. And there I had the most wonderful, wonderful uh, voice professor who I had to audition to, to get in with her, to study with her. And uh, I, when I, after I sang for it, I'm, I'm just this, green behind the ears, 16 year old. And she totters up to me. She was only about five foot tall and flaming red hair and uh, these very high heels and all that. And she took my face in her hands and she said, my dear, a beautiful book has been started. I can only add chapters. Well, that's a very profound statement for a 16 year old, just turned 17 to hear. And I knew I was in the right place then. And the four years that I had with her were, I was taught life lessons as well as voice lessons. I was her protege um, and I grew up at Indiana University. I had that opportunity on a campus of like 40,000 people with all kinds of denominations and races and all that. I was in a, in a, mixed culture of, of students, which was great for me. And I was allowed to grow up there. And then I was prepared to go into the business as such. And I'm grateful that 
I made that decision and that my parents didn't try to to sway me in any way, nor my sister. It was my decision. Um, and it was the best one I've, other than finding the love of my life, it's the best decision I've made in my life. I'll put it that way. Ah, that is wonderful. And so coming out of that program and starting to audition, what was the process like of sort of finding your niche in terms of the type of roles you'd be going up for? And Well, uh, at, at Indiana University, it's very much, uh, it's one of the finest opera schools in the United States, of course. So I was being pushed towards opera and I was, I did go with the Metropolitan Opera National Company for a year, which was very progressive because we had directors like Jose Quintero, who did all the Tennessee Williams plays. So we had him as a director and I used to, I used to stay behind from rehearsals and I would sit behind the piano because I wanted to watch him. He would go through with the pianist what he would be blocking the next day for the opera. And I would be sitting behind the piano. I thought, I just want to watch this man. And he was like a, 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 a leopard around the room, prancing around and letting the music dictate to him what should be done. And I learned a lot from that. And I, but I found that opera was not the the path that allowed me to to enjoy my music as I should and express myself. So I uh, I went I really went towards musical theater, and I did bankers auditions in New York. I met a, a couple of lovely young composers and and uh, writers, uh, Hal Hackaday and, and uh, Don Goldman. And it was by sheer luck that I, I met Don, the composer, and he said, oh, I'd, I'd love you to sing some of my music. And once I started with him, it just felt like uh, the right glove, the right fit. And I did backers auditions for them of, of a musical uh, called Ambassador. And uh, um, we did the backers audition with the producers said we need to do it in London because it is based on a Thomas Hardy novel. We need to, it's it's British in, in essence. Uh, we want to go there and get the uh, West End management. And to do that, they had to do the auditions there. And they said, well, could you go to London for us? And I looked at my diary and I said, look, here's the dates, I'm free. Uh, yes, well, within five days, they rang me back and they said, is your passport in order? We're going. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, one wild and wacky week in London, uh, we did these backers auditions for uh, producers in London. And uh, one of them, well, one of the first ones actually, and the room was packed with people. And, and it, we did about six of these through the day. And it was about an hour and a half um, per session and I'm singing about 17 songs and doing all this dialogue and everything playing all the female parts and after the first uh, showing that we had uh, this gentleman jumps up and he said oh hello I'm uh, my name is Ray Cook 
And I said, lovely to meet you. And he, he said, may I talk to you? I said, well, please follow me outside. I said, I have to get some fresh air because I've got to turn around and do this in another 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> and he said, and he was following me out. And he said, oh, uh, I'm I'm doing showboat here. And I said, oh, that's a wonderful show. And he walked me down to the end of the, the block. And it was a lovely, lovely day in London. And and uh, we get to the end of the block and, and all. And I said, excuse me, but I have to turn around and go back now. I said, lovely meeting and I wish you all the best for Showboat. Get back to the, the dance studio that we were, the dance center we were doing the, the uh, backers auditions. Went through the day and the, I think it was the last one of the day. And uh, the room was packed with all these people. And the gentleman came in just at the last minute and he sat down, he was more or less at my feet. And I said, oh, you know, I looked down and he said, no, I'm all right, don't, don't worry. And he sat there literally at my feet while I'm doing this audition. And um, at the end of the audition, he jumps up. He said, oh, hello, my name is Ian Bevan. I'm with Harold Feeling and we're doing showboat. I said, how funny. Now, somebody <laughs> this morning mentioned that. And it was, and he said, oh, you know, and I said, excuse me. I said, can I just go outside and get some fresh air. I said, I've really had quite a day of it. So he's following me out chat. And there again, I walked to the end of the block. And he's chatting he said, about Showboat. Get to the end of the block. And I said, very nice meeting you. Very, I wish you all the best with Showboat. Thank you very much. Go back and and the producers and the composer and, and lyricist and I, uh, we go out that evening to celebrate because we had raised the money that we'd gone there for to raise and all that. So it was a, a very successful trip. And we went to the white elephant for dinner and we were celebrating. And I thought, Oh gosh, the, the next day before I fly out, I've got to see a bit of London. I haven't had a chance to do that. So I'm up at the crack of dawn and all night I was awake. I was writing postcards to family and all that. And, and uh, the next morning I, at the crack of dawn, I'm I'm up, I'm racing to St. Paul's and going up the whispering, to the steps, to the whispering gallery. I'm dashing all around. I thought, oh, I must go to Herod's. I have to go to Herod's. And I get to Herod's and I'm going up to the fourth, fourth, fifth floor and all this. I'm in absolute amazement of everything. And I suddenly think, oh, I should ring the agent here who's been handling all of this to thank him and so I got to a payphone and I rang and the secretary said oh Miss Dallas we've been trying to reach you all morning and I said oh what's she said Harold Fielding would wants to see you at one o'clock and at this point it was 12 15. I'm upstairs at Harrods and I said well I'll try to make it and I could hear the phone drop at the other end and, and she came and she's well, I can't tell Harold Feeling. I said, please, I, I could be late. I'll try to make it. So it was at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. Believe it or not, I dashed back. I got in a taxi. I managed to get back to my hotel. I jumped in the shower, <laughs> changed clothes, grabbed some music that was in my bag that was packed and ready to go because I had to be on a plane flying back to New York that evening to be in New York the next morning in order to uh, fly to Montreal, change my suitcase and fly to Montreal to do a show with Bob Hope. So I had to be on that flight. And when I dashed out of the hotel, I grabbed Don Goldman's hand and I said, you're coming with me. 
and he gets in that he says what the heck is going on i said don't ask don't ask it's crazy <laughs> anyway we get to the theater royal drury lane and oh there's a lot of people around the stage showing up oh my this is a cattle call anyway the man who was at that last audition ian bevan comes running out and he says miss dallas lovely to see you i said oh nice to see you again so he takes me inside the the theater and it's a bare stage with a work light and the director wendy toy was there and harold feeling the producer and ray cook the conductor who'd been the first one at that first audition they said oh we're doing showboat uh the three of them were in the audience and uh they said, oh, would you sing for us? So I sang, and then they said, oh, could you sing something, something from the score? And I said, uh, off the top of my head, could I just glance at the score? So they handed me a score. Show it. So I sang, okay, fine, sang You Are Love. And then uh, Wendy Toy, the director, came down the aisle, and she said, oh, would you read something? And I looked at my watch. I said, it'll be a very cold reading because I have to be at the airport. So they handed me a script, and, okay, fine. And with the stage manager, I read a couple of pages. Fine, thank you. And I said, thank you very much. Lovely meeting you. I wish you all the best. And I'm going off stage and Don Goldman is following me like he's in shell shock at what's going on. Anyway, we get out to the, the pavement and out towards the taxi, Mr. Fielding's running out and he said, Miss Dallas, it was wonderful meeting you, blah, blah, blah. And he's literally hanging onto the taxi as we're pulling <laughs> away. And I said, lovely meeting you, wish you all the best with it. And anyway, made it to the airport in time and on the plane, Don and I, we're killing ourselves laughing. And I said, well, that was an adventure and a half, wasn't it? Well, and then I, I got back, I got back in time to get my flight to change my suitcases get to Montreal and, and do the shows there with Bob Hope and all back to New York. And, and it was approximately six weeks later at six o'clock in the morning that my phone rings in New York and it's the agent in London because it's uh, London is five hours ahead. And he said, Miss Dallas, they want you for Magnolia in Showboat. And I nearly dropped the phone and he said, they couldn't tell you. They knew they wanted you the minute you walked on the stage. and But they couldn't tell me that because um, of the circumstances with work permits over there and uh, the home office. They had to then show, the producer and all, had to show that they had auditioned and exhausted all British artists to have me over and there were 800 who had auditioned from all over the UK. So they had to go through all of those things and show that they were not right and I was. And then the work per permit had to be issued. So I had I, the agent and I said, well, it's, it's six o'clock in the morning here. And he said, okay, can you, can you, if I ring you back in three hours, will you have an, I said, well, I don't think my agent here will be in the office at 9 a.m., but I said, can you wait till 10? And he said, Lorna, I'll stretch it to 10 for you. So at 10 o'clock, I rang my agent here and I said, Ed, I've had that. And he said, Lorna, that's fantastic. He said, let me look at the diary. He said, looking at the diary, I can, I can safely get you out of the things without harming any 
uh, anything whatsoever. He said, and I think you should do Showboat. I think it's a wonderful thing for you to do. And uh, so that was that. So uh, I think it was uh, or 11 days later, I was on a flight to, to London. And uh, at that point, I didn't know how long I thought, how long is the show going to run? One never knows in this business. Right. So um, I arrived in London and uh, never having been there. Luckily, the producers of that ambassador show that I did all those uh, auditions for, they had a friend in London and they said, well, look, for a few days, we've got a, a flat there, an apartment that you can use. And I said, oh, wonderful. Thank you. So by getting over there and getting accustomed to everything of, you know, walking on the other, well, watching out for cars coming in different directions and all that, um, and just getting acclimated to everything. And the first day of rehearsal then going on, I knew no one at all, except the director, Wendy Toy, and the producer, uh, Harold Fielding, and the director, the uh, musical director, Ray Cook. And um, so I, I go into rehearsals, which were in the dress circle bar of the Drury Lane Theater. And I'm standing there and I'm, you know, obviously very excited and nervous. And uh, the double doors of the, the bar opened and suddenly I saw these thigh high red leather boots and these lips and these eyes, flashing eyes and all this hair. And this vision walks up to me and she says, hello, I'm Cleo. And it was Cleo Lane. And I said, hello, I'm Lorna. <laughs> uh, it was, that was the beginning of everything. And, and that rehearsal, Kenny Nelson was also in the cast, the other American in the cast. And uh, Kenny, Kenny was the original boy in, in Fantastics. Lovely, lovely artist. And Kenny and I were sitting next to one another in this read through of, of the show. We were all, uh, the director said, well, just, read through the script and and when we get to the songs if you know it just sort of you know kerfuffle through it just so we get an idea of the flow and we'll see who's playing who and we sort of look around and say oh yes you're you're playing so and so you're you're captain andy you're parse uh, and so it went that way and of course when cleo opened her mouth and sang can't help loving that man i turned around and i thought Oh my God, I'm going to be next to this woman every night. I'm going to learn everything I can from her. And I actually wrote in my script and like a cello and handed my script over to Kenny to see what I'd written. And the two of us were just sitting there in just absolute awe and, and wonder at this woman. And thus began my lifelong friendship and education with this remarkable singer. Ah. And Showboat ran for two years and three months. And I fell in love with London and knew I wanted to stay. And I, yes, it worked out in the end, but I, it was hard because... <laughs> Uh, anything that I did, a special work permit had to be granted. So there were a lot of obstacles, but I thought, I'm going to stick this out because it would take four years. 
And um, if I hadn't, I would not have met the love of my life. And so fate steps in. Someone up there was pulling the strings. Oh, that is such a wonderful story. It's and absolutely true. Oh, yes. And I would love to ask about two other great um, ladies of theater who you worked mm -hmm. with on stage, um, one being Molly Pecan and the other. <laughs> and the Molly Pecan was wonderful. Uh, I did a, a summer stock tour of Milk and Honey with Molly and her husband, Yonkel. And they were so dear, this wonderful little couple. And she was amazing. I think she was 80-something at that time. And she still did cartwheels on stage. She was amazing. And Molly and Yonkel uh, were just, I adored them. And I was far too young to be doing this role of Ruth in Milk and Honey, but I, I sort of put gray streaks in my hair and all that. And, and uh, uh, some of it originally started out with sort of like a, uh, shoe polish sort of thing great anyway it's crazy but um, I loved uh, knowing them and working with them and uh, in fact I, I spoke to both of them that I was very much uh, concerned about um, converting to Judaism at that time and Yonko said I would be happy to work with you Lorna but he said, just remember, you were not born Jewish, and there's a huge difference. But he said, it's wonderful that you want to embrace it. And it was very truthful what he said to me. He said, but he said, embrace it, but you don't need to convert. And anyway, they, they remain lovely friends. And there again, when I met my husband, I said, unfortunately, Yonkel had died by that time. But uh, Molly in New York, I said, you're going to have to meet Molly Pecan because you're going to have to pass her test as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> Gary and I went to Molly's apartment, which is across from Lincoln Center at that time. And she was so wonderful. And she embraced Gary and she said, oh, Lorna, he's a fine man. You've chosen wisely. Yonko would be happy too. Oh. And she, she left the room for a few minutes and she came back and she'd actually torn off a a charm from a charm bracelet that she'd had for many years. And she said, I want you to have it. It was one of the first things that Yonko gave me. You should have this now. And this this lovely charm. And then she came back and she says, and you have to have a fish knife from me. <laughs> fish knife from Molly. So yes, okay. Tremendous, tremendous influence on me and a wonderful person to know. Uh -huh. Yes. And the other um, great lady who you worked with, I'd be curious to know about, was Joan Diener on Kismet? <laughs> uh, oddly enough, someone came up to me after the show last night and they, they said, oh, we have something. Would you sign? And they pulled the papers back and it was a poster from Kismet. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Anyway, one Kismet we did in London and the producer, the producer they brought over Joan Diener her husband Albemar directed it and John Reardon came over to play Hajj and Christopher Hewitt the Caliph and uh, and Joan Diener playing her original Laloom and she was astonishing I mean she had a waist that was about that big <laughs> and uh, 
I, she had a fabulous sense of humor and we got along fabulously well, but she was, she was rather aloof with everyone else, but she and I got along fine. And the show was very interesting to do there. Uh, we did it at the Shaftesbury Theatre. Um, but unfortunately, the Shaftesbury was more or less under the control of a, a company uh, headed by Ray Cooney and the uh, Comedy uh, Theatre. And they really wanted the theatre back. They didn't want anything in there that would run very long. So we were rather... Uh, strangled as such and limited to the run that we could do and we closed earlier than anticipated because of that uh, which was a pity uh, but uh, I don't think London really knew what to expect with John and Joan particularly uh, but uh, it was certainly a well-sung production of Kismet I'll put it that way and it, it was a lot of fun to do and Putting on at that time, uh, um, the makeup for it was Texas dirt, which you had to put on all of your body. So that was that was not something I looked forward to every night. But anyway, one of those things. And another uh, role you played on the West End was Irene Malloy and Hello Dolly with Danny Larue. And. <laughs> At the time when you were doing that with, of course, a male in the lead, was there any sort of pushback to that or how was that sort of? Well, well Danny had uh, the moment that he saw Hello, Dolly, he wanted to do that role and he had campaigned for it like crazy. And the opportunity came to do the show in London. And um, Danny was, I have to say that that, week that I was in London doing the ambassador uh, uh, auditions uh, one evening that the auditions finished in time and I thought well I'm in London I have to go to the theater and the famous palace theater which is on Cambridge Circus which was very near where we were doing the auditions I thought oh I can make it down there in time to see a show so I I, I hurried down to that theater and I saw this billboard, Danny LaRue, and I thought, who's that? So, so I bought the ticket and went in, and Danny was so elegant, uh, and the show was very elegant, but beautifully dressed and all, and, and it was a review-type show, and I didn't know whether to call Danny a drag artist. He wasn't. He was too elegant for that. And he wasn't really a female impersonator. He was just Danny in a dress. And he and he went in his own way, watch a mate. And he he was he was so elegant. And when I, when I came out that night, I thought, how the heck do I describe this show to anyone in the States? I've never seen anything like it. But it was fabulous. It was so entertaining. I loved it. So anyway. Then when I wound up being in London doing Showboat, <clears throat> my opening night, I, I kid you not, I had like a tub, a huge tub full of red roses from Danny LaRue oh. that said, welcome to London, long and happy love, uh, run, love Dan. And I thought, 
just absolutely blown away. So I went by to see him and his manager says, come right up, Danny anxious to see you. And he said, my darling Lorna, he said, I know your opening night was a huge success. He said, now, any of your friends that come to London, if they come to my show, you let me know because I want to invite them up to my dressing room afterwards. Your friends are my friends from now on. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. You know, anyway, anyway, of course, any friends that came over and I said, well, obviously you've got to see Showboat. But I said, after that, if there's something else you want to go to see, I said, go see Danny LaRue at the palace. I promise you, you'll love it. You'll be well entertained and you can go backstage. So, of course, they did. And when I knew they were there, I would dash over to the theater afterwards and I'd hear this raucous laughter coming from Danny's dressing room and the stage door and say, go right on up, Miss Dallas. They're waiting for you. I'd go up and the champagne would be flowing and my friends would be in hysterics and loving every minute. They were treated like royalty. And anyway, Danny was so wonderful to them. And then the opportunity came for him to do Dolly and he wanted me as Irene Malloy. And we did Dolly in the Birmingham Repertory Theater to begin with. And the idea was we'd start the show there, rehearse it and everything, have it all set before coming into London. And we were gonna play a small mini tour possibly before we came into London. And the opportunity suddenly arose to come into the Prince of Wales Theater very early. And I have to say in Birmingham that Danny was Dolly. There was no essence of Danny LaRue in that whatsoever. He was, and standing in the wing, wings watching him do the soliloquy was heartbreaking. And so Danny, he considered the Prince of Wales Theatre in London a good luck theatre for him. So he said, yes, let's go in early. And we went in ahead of schedule and um, the night before, well, we got into London and the director, Peter Cole, was fired or he walked off. I, Whatever story you want to believe, I don't know at this point. Uh, he left. So Danny and Lionel Jeffries were literally directing the show for the Prince of Wales. We op the night before we opened, it was a huge variety club charity evening. And a lot of people with a lot of money who donated to the variety club for a number of different charities. Um, it was a black tie affair and not the right thing we should have had the night before we opened. And they were an audience that were not there to really enjoy the show they were there because they donated a lot of money and it was not the great sort of kickoff that we needed uh and danny in london he got concerned that his audience that he'd had for years his core audience would want to see dan so he suddenly started turning it into the Danny LaRue show. And I played it straight. I played Mal Irene Malloy straight. And 
the reviews were mixed. I came out fine. Unfortunately, Danny did not. And he it crucified him. And it was very, very unfortunate. But if the show, if people had seen the show in Birmingham, they would have wept watching him and they would not have been watching Danny. They were watching, they were watching Dolly Levi in Birmingham. And it was unfortunate uh, uh, and we did not have a long run. But Danny, after that, he said, well, my darling, I want you with me. So we did a concert at the Barbican with the London Symphony Orchestra. And I, I, opening night of Dolly, I had a black tuck suit and all. And there's a famous picture of Danny and then me in, in the Evening Standard. And he was in white that night in a, a tux. And I'm like straightening my tie. And I look at him, I said, he's my favorite leading lady, you know. So that was a headline on, on the Evening Standard that night. Uh, and I jokingly said to Danny, I said, oh, my gosh, Danny, I said, I'd love to see you in white tie and tails. I think you would look so elegant. Well, that night at the Barbican for the closing, darn it all, he came on stage in white tie and tails, and he looked stunning. It took my breath away. And he sort of grinned at me like, well, what do you think? <laughs> and we were lifelong friends. And Danny would ring my husband and me every Christmas morning. Uh, and we were invited uh, to a number of, of things with him. Uh, my husband booked him on the QE2 to sail to New York because Danny was afraid of flying. And uh, a number of theaters wanted him in Canada. So by having having him on the ship sailing across then he could be by car into Canada and so he could do the theaters there and came back by car back to New York to sail back to the UK so he was a very happy man and then he did get over his fear of flying and he went to Australia and he asked for me to come to Australia and do some shows with him there and television and we opened the Brisbane Arts Centre, the concert hall there, with the uh, uh, New Zealand Symphony. And uh, there again, Danny didn't come out in white tie and tails that time, but he came out in some pretty incredible costumes. It was impossible for me to outdress him, I'll put it that point, <laughs> that way. But uh, we had some, we really had some wonderful times and he was a lovely, elegant, genuine man. Oh, that is wonderful. <laughs> And so when you started performing more on your own as a cabaret and concert artist and all of that, I'd be curious to know what was the process like of choosing your repertoire? And Well, there's a broad way of defining cabaret show, which I did like on the larger stage with orchestras or bands as such. And that and that's a different kettle of fish entirely and that's go out and grab them by the throat uh, and uh, that was fun to do and I've got some great arrangements and, and had some wonderful uh, places and venues that I did those those type of shows but then the more intimate theater is was a different kettle of fish and I had seen some shows here in New York 
that I thought were very interesting. They were intelligent shows uh, by Karen Mason and Sarah Zahn. Uh, and they were beautifully thought out. And um, I thought, ooh, these, these are intelligent shows. And I thought, what's the common denominator? <clears throat> and through a friend of mine, Jamie DeRoy, I was introduced to uh, Barry Kleinbord. And Barry then came to London and he was visiting and he came out to my house and we were talking and I, I said, you know, what, what do you see my doing in a, in a show? And he said, Novello and Kern. I thought, that's a strange choice. And he said, look, you, you love the novella. I did so many Ivor Novello concerts for the BBC and all that. And he said, you'd love the novella material. You have an affinity for it. And he said, and Jerome Kern's music brought you to London, didn't it? I said, yes, you're right. Okay. So that first show with Barry and with Chris Denny on piano was devised for the German Street Theatre in London as a little theatre piece, uh, two acts. And... Um, that was based on the music of Arvid Novello and Jerome Kern. And it was a very rich catalog to choose from. It was amazing. And we, uh, we played the theater uh, and loved it. The audiences got rave reviews and it was one of those things that, yeah, but to do the two-parter here in New York was uh, pushing it a bit much. So we, broke it down to a one-hour version, which I did at the Firebird in New York when it was playing. And that met with success. But then it was sort of like, well, let's branch out a bit more. And <clears throat> since that time, I think I've done five different shows with Barry and Chris. And it takes a, a lot of time sorting out these shows. We're quite meticulous because... I like to think of them as a journey. I want to go on a journey. I want to take the audience on a journey with me. So I, I will make notes about things I would like to uh, express about myself or let people know because in an intimate cabaret, you are, you are naked. You're going out there. You're really exposing yourself and you have to be willing to do that. And I would make endless lists of stories or uh, experiences that I'd had. or And then down one side, I'd make a, a list of songs I'd like to sing. And Barry would go through it. And he, no, no, no. Yes. No, 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 no. Yes. And so then it would be a case of Barry would suddenly say, okay, your first one back. And the really the first intimate cabaret coming back after my husband died was called Home Again. And um, that was very carefully sorted out to, to express my joy of being back on stage and singing and certainly on a cabaret stage. And I paid tribute to my husband in that. I paid tribute to Cleo in that, certainly. And I was able to 
express myself and say, I'm back in business, folks. And um, in fact, that was one of the songs that was in, in that show. <clears throat> and since that time, I think it's four, five, this is our fifth one. And uh, Glamorous Night and Rainy Days is, is our last one. And not, I don't mean it's gonna be our last, going to be our last one, but it's this show. And uh, there again, it's a, it's a journey about things in my life that have been fun. Uh, some very interesting times. Uh, during lockdown, of course, uh, I won a Bistro Award on the March the 9th, 2020. And it was a special Bistro Award and I was thrilled with it. And my diary was filling up with some lovely engagements and all. And of course, a few days later, uh, <clears throat> the uh, pandemic hit and lockdown. And I think I got the, one of the last flights out of here back to London. And so in lockdown in London for two years, um, and during that time, then emails and messages coming through, uh, Miss Dallas, we're going to have to delay or postpone or whatever the engagements due to the pandemic. And everyone was in the same boat. So uh, coming back and then uh, with Barry and Chris working out the the show that I wanted to do. Uh, and during that time, during lockdown, I I had really gotten to know two lovely ladies in, in London who were friends of Barry's. And he'd said to them, he said, oh, please uh, look out for Lorna. And, and you know, and, and uh, uh, he said, just look out for her. And I got to know them better, Belinda Wright and, and Laura Scott. And unbeknownst to me, they commissioned a song to be written by Anne Hampton Calloway and Amanda McBroom for me. Uh, and the song is based on a true story. Uh, it is my story. Um, I had um, um, spent three and a half months in the hospital with my husband um, and he died in my arms uh, in, in the UK at 2.47 in the morning on the 28th of October, 2014. And um, um, that happened to be Cleo's birthday. I always rang her and I, I'm, I'm sitting there through the rest of the night holding him in, in the hospital room and thinking I cannot ring Cleo and tell her this news because my husband was a dear friend of hers for many years before that he was in the John Dankworth big band and um, he was there when Cleo and John got married uh, so <clears throat> anyway I after that um, during lockdown then I um, one night in the middle of the night, um, I, I felt my husband, I felt his lips on mine and I wasn't frightened. Uh, I was anxious. I looked around the room and it was, it was dark, but there was a warm glow about it. And 
when I looked at the clock, it was 2.47 in the morning, and that was the exact moment that he had died in my arms months before. Um, and I expressed that story to some friends, uh, Laura and, and Belinda among them, and they commissioned Anne and Amanda to write the song for me. And it's based on all of my words and what I spoke at his funeral. And Anne and Amanda both had met my husband and knew him and, and adored him. So it, they were not writing about someone they didn't know. And the song really is quite special. It's called In My Dreams. <clears throat> and when I said to Barry, I wanted to do this song, to introduce it in my show, then we had to find a way that that it could be introduced in the show in a way I didn't I didn't want people to feel and I don't want people to feel really sad. I want them to feel uplifted because someone very special was there for me and it's no reason why they couldn't be someone special in their lives couldn't be there for them if they believe. And um, and it was a profound experience and a beautiful experience and something that I needed at that time during the pandemic. And so we introduced that song in the show. So working away around in the show, and that's where Barry is so very clever uh, of, of introducing this song and the things around it that makes sense and keep it in a framework that's that's special in its own way, but also uh, takes us to that point, takes the audience to that point in a uh, an entertaining way. That sounds wrong to say, in, but I don't know how else to express it, but to take them on the journey with me and to, at the end of it, after hearing it, to feel uplifted and feel warm about it and um uh and enriched uh so that's one of the one of the lovely moments in the show for me i have to say so that so this show is is a totally different journey from the other shows that i've done and it's it's uh, a very interesting journey and yeah we cover a lot of material with a lot of acting points so uh, um yeah it's as much an acted show as it is a sung show, and it's a very wide range for me to do, which I find a wonderful challenge. And um, and yeah, I did. I I thrilled with this show, and and I I hope as many people as possible can see it, and people in the business. I I love it, and I'm very honored and very touched when other singers come to the show, and, and artists and actors. That that thrills me very much. So, it sounds like a beautiful show does well I, I i think it is yeah and so i would love to close our conversation by asking with such a wonderful career in the theater what advice would you give to someone just starting out okay embrace everything around you um if you've had someone that's been inspiring as a teacher remember their words hang on to them i was so blessed with the with the teachers and mentors that i had starting 
when my sister left to go away to university, I got her spot studying with this 80-year-old woman who was who taught me piano and voice and just spoon-fed good habits to me. When I went to university, I had the wonderful voice professor I mentioned earlier, Virginia McWaters, who nurtured me. And when I went to London, I had someone there who was a wonderful set of ears who uh, didn't try to change anything, just held on to that nurturing and embraced it and encouraged me. And just, I was so fortunate. So I say to any young artist, find the right person for you. Don't, you don't need to go around to so many different people. Find one that works for you and embrace what they can give you. And then keep your eyes open and embrace everything around you because at some point you're going to use it in some role or a song you're going to find ah that day i was walking down the street and i saw lena horn walking the other way what did i think at that time wonderment was a word i use wonderment everything should be a wonderment to you that it's like always new and even at my age Things are still a wonderment, and I hope they never change. Oh, that is great. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure to meet you and to talk to thank you. you. Thank you. Yes, and I Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined for a rare in-depth interview by Jesse Green. Jesse Green is the chief theater critic for the New York Times and the author of the books Shy and the Velveteen Father, you won't want to miss this conversation with one of the most influential minds in the industry, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.